Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance world that we live in. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. And most excitingly, because this is something I've kind of been dreaming of for a while now, definitely <laughs> over a year, Professor Stephanie Kelton is with us. And not only is she with us, but she has a new book out. So um, tell us what your book is and who you are and what you do. Uh, so I'm Stephanie Kelton, and I'm a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, where I teach courses in the economics department and in the Masters of Public Policy administration program. And uh, I've got a book that just came out a little over a week ago that, um, much to my astonishment, debuted uh, at number 13 on the New York Times bestseller list. Lucky 13. I, it is apparently for me a very lucky number. So um, that's who I am and uh, what I do. And that's the book. And the book is called? It's called The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the people's economy. And you are the most high profile avatar of modern monetary theory or MMT as it's known. So we are going to spend this whole episode talking about MMT, what it is, what it says, how it flips our understanding of government finance in particular on its head, and whether we should just give up issuing government bonds at all right now and just drop money from helicopters onto the economy. It's a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to get stuck into it. So that is coming up on Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So, Stephanie, we have had probably more requests for this show than for any other topic that I can 
think of. Every couple of weeks or so, we get a person or people writing and saying, what is this MMT? Can you explain it? Does it make any sense? So I guess my first question to you is, why? What Have you touched a nerve here? Is there like something in the water? Why do people care about this um, sort of little debate inside the economics profession? Because people really don't normally care about debates inside the economics profession. I, I think you're right. I mean, um, it does tend to feel sometimes like you've, you know, whacked a beehive or something. And, you know, all of a sudden, there's all this flurry of buzzing and excitement and, you know, the stingers come out and it, it gets a little tense sometimes um, when the economists start kind of in a back and forth. And I, I don't know, Felix, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people just feel like they've had some sort of awakening in this moment, maybe especially right now where we just spent 2019 watching a very crowded field of Democratic presidential hopefuls talk about a variety of programs that they would like to implement if they were to become president. And you know that that, that um, conversation was dogged constantly by this question about how you're going to pay for it. And, you know, we, we listen to candidates debate everything from Medicare for all, the student debt cancellation and the money, money, money piece always got in the way. It always intruded. It was always the thing that was going to prevent us from getting there. How are we going to come up with the money? And so, you know, here we are in this moment with the coronavirus pandemic and Congress is passing bill after bill and into the trillions of dollars we are without anyone pausing to ask where is the money coming from? Whose taxes have to go up? And so I think what it's done is just, you know, pull back the curtain and say, wow, Congress really can act when it perceives there to be some sort of a high priority. They can just conjure the money into existence and, uh, and we're off and running. So I think people feel a little duped in a sense by, um, you know, the, the kind of time we wasted over the course of the last year. Um, when now it, it all seems so simple. So this is the key message of your book, is that the first thing that happens is that Congress spends the money. Um, everything else happens after that. The issuance of treasury bonds, the raising of taxes, all of that comes later. The first thing that happens is Congress spends the money. And, you, and this is the crazy thing that you, you write, is that you don't even need to borrow it. You don't need to raise it in taxes and you don't even need to borrow it. They can just spend it. And there's just a kind of convention that if you have if you're running a budget deficit, then you cover that deficit with with treasury bills. That's exactly right. I, I mean, we I think that, you know, all of us and myself included uh, before I came to see things differently, we have this understanding of the federal government and its budget um, that we think it works like our own, right? And so we think that the government has to find the money. And that's because we've been trained to think in those terms. So when policy makers, you know, talk about Medicare for all or whatever it is, you know, how are you going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? We think they have to get the money first. So they have to arrange their financing. They have to go out and increase somebody's taxes and or borrow some money from savers. And that once they have the money, then they're in a position to go out and spend. But they have to arrange the financing first, just like I would if I want a new car. You know, I don't just get to drive off the lot with a car. I have to 
put the money up first, right? I have to find the money. So um, you're right that in this book, uh, MMT flips that around and recognizes that, in fact, the money to pay taxes and buy bonds has to first be made available, right? You can't use tax, you can't use dollars to pay taxes or use dollars to buy bonds until those dollars have first been put into the economy. They got to be somewhere before anybody can have them. And so, yeah, um, that flips everything around and recognizes, then we have to ask, well, well, if the taxes and the bonds aren't financing the government spending, what are they doing? Well, one, one thing just to start with, you know, in terms of how the current financial system works, you know, the government is certainly plays a, a large role in the financial system. However, almost all of the money in our financial system is created in the private banking system. You know, that's why we have a Fed. You know, if we didn't have a private banking system, there'd be absolutely no reason to have a reserve system. It's simply an interbank clearing mechanism. So I, I agree with a lot of the things MMT is saying in terms of critiquing a lot of these kind of standard narratives about how we have to understand deficits and debt. However, it does seem like your theory sometimes doesn't really kind of except that, that dis- there's a distinction there between a private banking system and the public financial system. Okay, so um, it's, it's a fair point, especially because I don't take that up in the, in the book in, in the same way that Keynes didn't in the general theory after he'd already written the treatise on money. So, you know, once you kind of plow that field, you don't have to continue to repeat when you want to make different points at, uh, in a different type of book. So what I would say is that, you know, the MMT economists have long understood and written about endogenous money creation, private banking. I mean, that's stuff that we did before really starting to build out the literature for MMT. We've been there and done that. But now we're having trying to have a different conversation. And that conversation is about the um, working of the monetary system and public money. So it it is about uh, the focus is different at different points in time. And in my book, I don't have a chapter that deals with private credit creation and so forth. I have some references, um, but it doesn't mean that we don't understand that most of the stuff that we call money is in fact created by private banks, that banks create by making a loan, a bank creates a deposit and that's new money creation. Of course, we understand all of that as well. Yeah, just saying, because you were just saying kind of this idea that, you know, if the government isn't spending money, can't be created. But, you know, if if I go into the bank and get a loan, the banking system is creating money. And while I I mean, I understand you can kind of look back and say, well, we have a reserve system. But, you know, it does seem to me like, you know, this is all just credit creation and credit creation happens in different parts of the economy, not simply as a mechanism of the government. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no question about that, right? I can I can walk into a bank and a bank can credit my account and I will walk out with, uh, you know, $100,000 that I didn't have before I walked in, right? And I also walk out with $100,000 new liability if I borrowed that money. Um, so yes, it, it, it is true and, and understood well in MMT. But again, the point that Felix was raising earlier is that MMT is trying to help give people a better understanding of public finances. So when we have these political debates about finding the money and so forth, we're trying to help people see that the money comes from the votes, that when Congress authorizes, let's say, the CARES Act and $2.2 trillion, they are committing to spending money they do not have. 
And the reason that they can do that is because they know that when they pass a bill like that, they're effectively ordering up new dollars from the Fed and that the Fed is going to fill that order by marking up or changing the size of the appropriate bank account. And and so we're trying to explain the monetary operations, the mechanics that take place, coordination between the Treasury and the Fed. How do the dollars come into existence? And so the focus is just on the public budget and the creation of public money through that those channels. So you said something very interesting there. You said that the members of Congress know this, although I'm a little bit unclear whether they did. Do I say or that, not. Felix? Did I, I, I feel. Say- like- we know, did I say we know, or did I say the members of Congress? You, see, you said that when they when they pass the bill, they know that they can do that because they're ordering the Fed to just create the money out of thin air. Like I think they don't know that, and I think one of the messages of your book is that they that lawmakers don't actually have that understanding that you um, that you write about. Okay, I I think I agree with that. I I didn't mean to uh, imply or suggest that Congress, most members or maybe any, have a, a sort of deep understanding of the mechanics and the monetary operations and why it is the case that um, the votes themselves fund the spending. You know that they can take for granted that all of the things that need to happen behind the scenes will happen so that those payments are always carried out. There's no chance the federal government's ever going to bounce a check and that sort of thing, because the Treasury and the Fed coordinate to ensure smooth payment clearing and all that sort of stuff. I don't think they understand why it's the case, but there must be something in them that understood that they didn't have to have a big debate about pay-fors when they passed the CARES Act, that they could just get up and do that. You have a wonderful little exchange in your book between Rand Paul and Alan Greenspan, where like Alan Greenspan actually was at the Fed, obviously, and so he knew how the Fed book worked, and and he kind of blurts out at one point, "Yeah, of course we can just create as much money as we want." I guess I'm interested in in the in the sort of like epistemic status of Washington here. Like, if you had to split Washington into people who kind of have this understanding of federal money creation and people who don't, who would you put on each side? Oh, I mean, look, Chairman Powell knows just as his predecessor knew, just as, you know, go all the way back. You mentioned Greenspan, fast forward through. Fed officials know. I think Treasury uh, officials know. What they say publicly doesn't always match up with what they will say, let's say, privately in conversations. I don't think there are very many people in Congress, I probably couldn't even come up with a name to give you for somebody who understands, I think, the monetary system and the mechanics that we've just been talking about. So um, I don't have, I can't put anybody, uh, I don't think I can put anybody in the house. Um, I mean, what's so great about your book, just to rewind a little, is it's like, What's that Keanu Reeves movie where the conservatives like to use the analogy about the red pill? The, the pill, and you take the pill, and then you see what the world is actually really like. And it's like reading Stephanie's book is you read it and you're like, oh, of course the deficit is just this <laughs> bullshit thing that's been created so they don't spend money on poor people ever. Like, really? And I was watching a Senate hearing yesterday about um, paid sick leave in the time of coronavirus. And we can all agree that we need to have paid sick leave in the time of coronavirus, obviously. Um, And then, you know, there's the Republican lawmakers up there 
senators saying like, well, of course we need to do this, but we need to do it responsibly and we can't spend any money. It shouldn't cost anything. And, you know, we shouldn't run up deficits doing this. And I'm just like, now that I've read the book and I've taken the pill or whatever, I'm just exploding with anger because you know that not only can you spend the money, that if you spend the money, you're creating more money. You're making people more productive by allowing them to keep their jobs and whatnot. It's just, um, I feel like- You've been red-pilled by Kelton. It's frustrating to read. Yeah. I mean, I always knew that the deficit thing was, it didn't make any sense. Like, we can't spend this money on poor people because the deficit, but we can spend this money on a war. No one mentions the deficit. Like, it's always been ridiculous. And I feel like- it made me sad to read, like, Stephanie, how you, you know, you kind of convinced Bernie Sanders about it. But in the end, like, he wasn't talking about the deficit myth. Or there's that one scene where you're talking to that congressman, and you convince him, you you give him the pill or whatever, and he's convinced, and you sold him. But like, when he goes out in public, he won't say it. Like, how are, what is the plan to get everyone to just admit the truth about the deficit myth? I am bought in, so I'm. I can help you. <laughs> okay, how are you going to do it? So here, here's what I think. You know, you're right. In that um, last chapter of the book, I do tell a story about um, meeting up with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, and him having that moment where he suddenly recognized that he'd been thinking about the government's budget and its fiscal capacities as if the government was a household, and and he had it, he had it wrong. And his his response to that was to say to us, I can't say that, right? I can't say that. And so you're like, how do we get them yeah. to say that? <laughs> and I say in the book that, you know, you mentioned Senator Sanders and, and you know, as well as I do, we've all heard him say it a thousand times that, you know, the change never comes from the bottom, uh, from the top down, change always comes from the bottom up. And I I feel like that's a lot of what I hope that this book will do is to help bring about that kind of change in our in our public discourse and the way that we debate public policy, the um, framing that we use, the you know the whole thing that it will kind of come from the bottom up. That it will become increasingly difficult for a member of Congress to go back to their home district and stand in front of their constituents and have their constituents haranguing them about why we aren't providing enough funding for education or doing infrastructure, whatever it is. And the and the congressman or congresswoman says, you know, oh man, I really uh, sympathize with you. I'd love to be able to do more, but, you know, that's $23 trillion debt or this, you know, tr- multi-trillion dollar debt, so we just can't do it. And that there will be enough people in the room who've been empowered through you know, a better understanding of what the real limitations are that they can go, no, 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 you're not going to, you're not going to give me that line, right? I, I don't buy that anymore. I understand that provided the real resources are there. I know you guys can always afford to do it. What you're really saying is you don't want to do it because you don't think it's a priority and just really be in a position to push back because right now, when a member of Congress says, yeah, but we got these deficits and debt, we say, oh, that's right. We do, don't we, you know, and, and, oh, I, I don't want to do that to my children and grandchildren. So I'll stop pressing you, you know, for to do more on the fiscal stuff, because I know we can't afford it. We just accept that excuse. It's like their get out of jail free card. They just trot out the debt and the deficit. And then we tuck our tail between our legs and, and we s- stop asking for nice things. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think we probably are all in agreement that the U.S. has a tremendous capacity to spend. It has a tremendous capacity to run deficits and debt and not probably have a significant negative impact. However, you know, there is there might not be a nominal constraint, but there's certainly a real constraint, which I think, you know, you've and most MMT people, all MMT people, I think, will acknowledge that, you know, the restraint, of course, is inflation. And although, you know, nowadays everyone kind of thinks, oh, inflation doesn't exist. But obviously, like if you kind of shifted the system and were continually spending trillions and trillions and trillions, you, you probably would start to generate inflation. So kind of what what is the MMT solution then to deal with that? Perfect. I love that question. So, so that's what we do, right? We really do center inflation risk. So if MMT is about anything, it's about replacing artificial and imaginary constraints with a real resource constraint, with an inflation constraint. And I can tell you from my time in the Senate, working on the Budget Committee as the chief economist for the Democrats, I never once heard a single staffer or member of the Senate, not one on either side of the aisle, use the I word inflation. I never heard it. It's not It's not that it's not that they don't think about it. It's not even an afterthought. It's not a thought. No one thinks of inflation. So what that means to me, you know, if we were back in 2019, and we're looking at an economy with an unemployment rate of say three and a half percent, and you say, well, this doesn't look like there's a lot of fiscal space here. I don't know how much is left. There's some to be sure, but we probably couldn't do a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill right now without offsetting that spending or much of it, right? Without creating some inflation problem. But here's the the thing. The way the federal budgeting process is set up today is to respect PAYGO, right? We try to pay for everything so we don't add to the deficit. And so what I'm saying is, imagine that you're back in 2019 and some member of Congress writes a bill and they say, Let's do some big infrastructure spending, so several trillion dollars, because we have this infrastructure deficit. And let's pay for it with a wealth tax, okay? Because we don't want to add to the deficit. So we want to make sure that we bring in three trillion in new revenue so that we offset all three trillion in infrastructure spending. You write the bill, you send it over to CBO, CBO scores it based on what? Its impact on the budget outlook. Does it add to the deficit? Does it increase the long-term debt to GDP ratio? And they go, oh no, this is a great bill. It's fully paid for, doesn't add to the deficit. They give it a green, uh, a green light, gold star, send it back to Congress. Now Congress can move forward and vote on that legislation. So I'm saying, suppose they vote to pass this bill. Doesn't add to the deficit, looks like a great bill. Now you've committed to spending several trillion dollars into an economy 
that may not be able to safely absorb that $3 trillion, even though it's all offset because you've chosen an offset, a wealth tax, that's going to remove $3 trillion over time from people who were largely not going to spend that money on new newly produced goods and services in the first place. So I, I know that you know what I'm saying, right? Which is that under an MMT budgeting framework, you would have much more protection against inflation risk than we do under the current budgeting system, where nobody's evaluating new spending based on the potential inflation risk. All we care about is, does it add to the debt? Does it add to the deficit? So my answer to the inflation question is, in part, the best way to fight inflation is before it happens. You know, you want to do it preemptively. So I want to drill down on this a little bit. Um, can you explain a little bit about what caused previous bouts of inflation in the United States, or possibly elsewhere if you want, and how foreseeable that was and how you would anticipate Congress being able to sort of head that off before it happens? Yeah. So, you know, Felix, in not just in the US, but across in the UK and across other parts of Europe, we used to be pretty damn good at this during and after immediately after World War Two. There were you know, we had something called a National Resources Planning Board. We actually, you know, thought about managing our nation's real resources. How do you manage inflationary pressures during World War II and after World War II. And there were convenings of not just academic economists, but industry leaders, labor leaders, people got together and they tried to figure out where are the pressure points in the economy where bottlenecks can begin to build up, where if we do more spending in this area, we're likely to trigger some inflationary pressure, but there's space over here for other kinds of investments. We used to be pretty good at this. Then I'm going to fast forward to the 1970s because everybody always wants to talk about stagflation. Clearly, inflation can become a problem even in an economy that is nowhere near its full employment constraint. And that's what happened in the 1970s, right? Not stagflation. We had simultaneously very high levels of unemployment alongside very high inflation rates. You know, we can get inflation um, not as a consequence of trying to run the economy too hot, but in fact, in a depressed economy. Because what? Because things happen on the supply side. You can have oil price shocks. You had the Vietnam War. You had uh, a war in 1973 in the Mideast. You had stronger unions. And so when prices increased, workers were more successful at getting wages to increase. So you can get that wage price spiral kind of dynamic. We don't have those sort of conditions at play today. I mean, energy prices have been falling. Um, the union movement has been significantly uh, weakened over time. So yes, things can happen. And, inter and we could look at other examples like, you know, Zimbabwe or the, um, you know, Weimar Republic or something like that. Again, it, you know, inflation is a dynamic process. It's a complicated phenomenon. It doesn't happen for the same reasons in all times and places. But if you want to just pick one example and say what happened in Zimbabwe, Mugabe comes to power and he wants to reward the freedom fighters. He takes land away from the whites who'd been farming it and redistributes it uh, to blacks who just did not have, at least initially, any experience farming the land. And you had massive food shortages. And then you had to rely on imports of food to feed the population. And you're printing money to import food and you got a hyperinflationary 
episode there. But you know, when you think of inflation as too much money chasing too few goods, it has normally been the case historically that the problem is on the too few goods side. Something happens to the productive capacity, something happens as a supply side shock, oil prices or something, and you get an inflation problem. And your view in, in MMT is that the best way to fight inflation is not through the Fed, it's not through monetary policy, but it's through Congress, it's through fiscal policy. So going back to the 70s and 80s, and we were all, you know, there's this legendary part of American economics, which is Paul Volcker comes in and raises interest rates and whips inflation because he is the, the ubermensch who can do that. Um, what would be the, your, what would have been your way of bringing inflation down not by relying on the Fed, but instead on the fiscal side? Well, I think Jimmy Carter did a pretty good job of breaking the back of inflation in that period. And I see the eyebrows raising. I've because, never heard anyone uh, say presumably that. Presumably, you, you've <laughs> never heard anybody say that, right? Because Volcker gets all the credit. And, you know, MMT has pointed out that it is possible that what Volcker was doing in that period was actually helping to... Um, if not accelerate inflation, at least continue to fuel the inflation of that period. Why? So we think that the way to fight inflation is to raise interest rates, because we think that if interest rates go up, that increases the price of credit, people will borrow less and spend less. MMT recognizes, and by the way, so do some folks at various Federal Reserve banks, there's been some research into this, um, MMT recognizes that, yes, increasing interest rates raises the uh, borrowing costs, but some other things also happen. Like, for example, when interest rates are increasing and government bonds are maturing, the government is rolling over those bonds now at higher interest rates. So guess what? Bondholders are making more money because interest income is increasing. And if you believe that bondholders spend at least some of their uh, interest income, that the marginal propensity to consume out of interest income is greater than zero, then when the Fed hikes interest rates, it works like fiscal expansion, right? Because interest payments increase. So somebody's income goes up. So somebody uh, will support higher spending. The other thing is if firms have borrowed to finance a lot of their um, you know, wage bill or uh, long-term uh, capital investments, if firms have borrowed and interest rates are going up and they're rolling over, they're borrowing at higher rates, they may in fact pass on to the end consumer in order to protect profit margins, the cost of rising interest rates. So a couple of things are happening, right? Raising interest rates makes credit more expensive. It might uh, reduce borrowing and spending, but it also increases interest income, which might increase spending. It also increases the costs to firms who have borrowed and have to pay interest and they may try to pass those costs on to consumers, and that might raise prices. What Jimmy Carter did in the midst of all of this, while Volcker was trying to fight inflation by hiking interest rates, was to deregulate the natural gas industry. And all of a sudden, natural gas prices came crashing way down, and that eventually uh, broke the, the oil cartel, right? Brought oil prices down. Well, unsung so hero we, Jimmy Carter. Who knew? Yeah. One thing I would I'm kind of interested because I know in like functional finance, the kind of idea is that monetary policy essentially keeps interest rates quite low, and then you manage inflation using fiscal policy. I know that's a crude explanation, but the, I guess one of the things, though, is that, you know, when you have extremely low interest rates, you do tend to get excessive credit creation in the private sector. 
um, you tend to get a lot of asset price inflation. And this is something we've seen frequently. This is something we've seen historically. And private debt accumulation is far more dangerous than public debt accumulation. And I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, in this system, how how do you protect against that? Yeah. So this is this is a great question. So you're right. Um, If we're not using interest rates to try to manage the economy, then what other tools would be available to policymakers to attenuate buildups in risk, excessive risk taking and, and that sort of thing? So I think the Fed talks a lot about macroprudential, right? And you can do a lot of things on the regulatory side. You can do a lot of things in terms of credit controls. If you want to let uh, a housing bubble just continue unabated, then you know, s- sit back and let lenders continue making loans with um, no money down or very little money down. If you want to try to um, clamp down on that, then increase the requirements for you know a federal guaranteed housing loan or something like that, right? You there are things that you can do, right? I, I see. Uh, I, I think I'm making sense. So anyway, there's a whole toolkit that can be enhanced to give the Fed, in fact, more power to influence um, lending and manage credit conditions in the economy. I just we just don't believe that interest rates are all that powerful a tool. Right. People believe that that interest rates are the you, know, you know, give the Fed one price or give central banks one price, the overnight interest rate. And somehow 25 basis points here, 25 basis points there. And you're going to balance conditions in the whole of the economy, manage inflation and so forth. I just don't think it works. And I think that sometimes they confuse the brake pedal for the gas pedal. You're looking at countries, you know, you got central banks all over the world with negative interest rates. You got Japan struggling for about three decades to hit its own 2% inflation target. If, if it worked that well uh, as a policy tool, surely somebody would have figured out how to hit their inflation target by now. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk a little bit about taxing rich people? Because one of the interesting things about your book uh, and about MMT seems to me is that, and that maybe why Wall Street kind of is into MMT, I think people say, is because it kind of obviates the need to raise taxes on rich people. But I know that to fight inequality and sort of, you know, decrease the divide between rich and poor that I think you would say would be harmful, you have to really tax rich people. So can you talk a little bit about sort of like why you still want to tax people in an MMT world? Sure. I did this actually for the Patriotic Millionaires, which was really fun. Uh, they had sort of an inaugural conference in Washington, D.C., like a year and a half or something ago back when we were traveling. And uh, they had me come in. Now, this is an organization that formed itself for the purpose of saying, we are super rich. Please take more of our money. Right. That's the patriotic <laughs> right. millionaires. We want to help. We want to help the country have nice things. Please tax us more. 
And um, and it, it works beautifully if state governments tax them more because they really can use that mm-hmm. revenue to provide, you know, enhanced public services and so forth. The federal government doesn't need their money in order to finance expenditures. That doesn't mean that uh, MMT or that I um, am providing cover and saying, well, we don't need their money, so let's just leave them alone. Okay, not at all. And in the book, I say that we should absolutely be doing more to address income and wealth inequality in this country. And that means using the tax code, making it more progressive, getting at these concentrations of wealth that are so extreme now that they don't just cause our economy to function more poorly when you have this degree of income and wealth inequality, but they're corrosive to our democracy, right? It undermines the democratic process, the political process. It's compromised with this with this kind of extreme wealth. So I don't want to look at these guys and say, Jeff Bezos, uh, the Koch uh, brother um, and the Waltons are my piggy bank. And I can't carry out a progressive agenda without their help. I really need to take their money in order to feed a hungry kid or fix a crumbling bridge. I don't want to be dependent on them in that way. I think that's a bad narrative because it really does leave us in a position where we feel like we can't care for our communities and our economy without them, right? Unless and until we can get uh, legislation passed to tax them, we have to hold the rest of our agenda hostage. No. And I don't like the idea of of peeling off a few bucks, using them delicately to peel back just enough to cover whatever it is we're trying to do, which is why, I'll be honest, the idea of a 2% wealth tax for me is using the rich as a pay for. And and on top of that, you're telling them, I'm not, but they were told, don't worry, you're not even going to feel it because your wealth is going to grow by more than 2% per annum. And so you're going to end up richer and richer every year anyway. So you really shouldn't complain. Uh, I, I think that they should feel it, right? I think that if we're going to really seriously address uh, wealth inequality, that you don't approach the wealth tax the way that people currently talk about it. We just need a little bit right? You won't even notice it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have to really go after it aggressively. And tell rich people like, you're going to feel less rich after I'm done with you? I think that's that's the goal, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, there's a guy, if I could quickly say, there was a guy, uh, and I think he was a Republican, and he was probably wealthy. He was a businessman. Um, His name was Beardsley Rummel. And Beardsley Rummel- Isn't it so fun to say Beardsley Rummel? Does he work at Condé Nast? He was- (laughs) The, then they called it president. He was the president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. So in 1946, this guy, who's the head of the New York Fed, goes out and gives a speech and uh, publishes this, uh, I think, the remarks in an article. And the speech was called, Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete. Now, think about it. It's 1946. He's the head of the Federal Reserve Bank. And he makes the argument that the government doesn't tax in order to get revenue. Wow, right? That that was his argument. So what is the purpose of the tax then? If the federal government doesn't need your money in order to fund expenditures, why do we tax? And he goes through all of these arguments. One is that, you know, when the government spends, it gives birth to a new dollar. Every every time Congress commits in legislation to some new spending, a dollar is born because the Federal Reserve types it into the keyboard, an account is credited, and new money is created. So there is a new dollar. That dollar will travel around the economy 
until the government takes it back out. Either the Fed or Treasury has to take it back out. So if I write a check to the IRS, that's the graveyard for the dollar, right? It has been um, put to <laughs> put to death once I give it back to the government. And so Rummel said, well, look, one of the reasons we have a tax is because we can't possibly let the government just spend all the dollars in without subtracting any away or we're going to have inflation. So the tax is there to recover, to recoup or to subtract away some of that those dollars so we can mitigate inflation risk. Another is that it allows us to impact the distribution of wealth and income. So taxes are important for that. And the final one was, um, actually, there were two more. I'm only going to mention one. Uh, incentives and disincentives. We can use the tax system to try to get people to do or not do certain things, polluting, right, drinking sugary drinks, whatever it is, right? Um, so lots of reasons for having taxes and raising taxes, but none of them, he argued, all the way back in 1946 had to do with paying the bills. It, it, it is very clear that obviously the government does not need to tax in this moment to spend the dollar. I think I'll agree on that. But the reason that the government has the capacity to spend is because there is this underlying productive economy, that if you didn't have this underlying large, diverse, productive economy that was generating value, the government wouldn't have capacity to spend because people wouldn't be willing to hold the dollars. They wouldn't be willing to hold the debt. I mean, people are financing the government by choosing to use those dollars, by choosing to hold those dollars. If they decide that something that was $50, now you have to pay $100 for, essentially they're charging the government more. You know, it, in, in a sense, we are all financing the government spending through the underlying productive capacity of the economy. So I guess just in terms of when you're saying that, you know, we, we like, don't need these people, I mean, you still kind of do. <laughs> you still do need the economy to generate wealth. You need there to be value being created or otherwise people won't be willing to hold dollars. I don't think I agree with that. Um, I, I think that, you know, what we're pointing out in MMT is that it's the rest of us who need the government's money, not the government who needs our money. Look, in in an economy that was not productive at all, in the depths of the Great Depression, when people didn't have any money and the productive capacity had been badly destroyed, FDR was able to come in and do the New Deal. And then World War II, it isn't the case that the people were financing the government because the economy was so productive and they bought into this and they were willing to um, you know, pay their taxes. And that's how the government was able to do that it was exactly the opposite, right? No, because I mean, if the government spending had been completely unproductive, I mean, if the government spending had been on things that didn't increase the underlying productive capacity of the economy, you almost certainly would have just had inflation, but that was good government spending. And, that, and I think that's the thing. It's, it's whether it's productive or unproductive. If whether the government or private investment is being spent productively, then that helps that underlying economy, which then supports the government's ability to spend. I mean, when you have hyperinflation, it's often because for some reason that productive capacity has been eliminated or really, really damaged for some reason. Okay. I mean, I... I accept that. I mean, I, I don't think that's a challenge in any way to MMT because there's nothing in MMT that says, let's expand uh, the deficit in unproductive ways. Um, so I, I accept that. I, I would also argue that the Republican tax cuts were pretty unproductive. That, I completely you know, agree. Yeah, <laughs> I completely and, agree. And so we could do that and we could do more of that. We can build things and blow them up 
And every time we pay somebody to build the thing, that adds to GDP. And, it, you know, we have additional productive capacity, but then we blow it up. And that also adds to GDP, right? Because you pay somebody to go out and drop bombs or whatever and blow up bridges. Well, that that destroys productive capacity. And if you did a lot of that over time, like what happened to Germany after World War One, you had the destruction of massive productive capacity. And by the way, that helped set the stage for the hyperinflation that followed because you had the reparations and you had an economy that couldn't keep up with the productive, that didn't have the productive capacity. So I totally, um, I totally take the point that you cannot continue to provide income support or spend into an economy that lacks sufficient productive capacity to meet that demand with higher supply or you're going to get an inflation problem. I, I accept that. Let me ask about the situation we're in right now, where I think certainly all four of us would agree that there's just enormous potential for the government to come in and spend money where it's sorely needed in anywhere from the state and local government sector to the restaurant sector, small businesses, you name it, education. Um, there's no end of places that need a bunch of, of money right now. Um, we're running, I don't know, $4 trillion deficit this year, something like that. It's it's completely off the charts compared to anything we've ever done in the past. Um, so my question for you is, would you still fund that deficit by issuing treasury bonds, given how you know what that ends up doing in terms of rhetoric around the national debt? Or is there a case to just spend the money without issuing bonds and without increasing any kind of national debt or debt to GDP ratio and just like drop money from helicopter straight into where it's needed in the economy? Yeah, you know that in the book, I um, I don't take a strong position one way or the other, but I will here uh, because you put it in a different context in the in the moment of the coronavirus and with trillions of dollars of spending. And my, I guess, great fear is that we'll see a repeat of something like what we saw in the early years of the Obama administration, where the run up in the deficit and the additions to the debt gave people cold feet and led Congress to um, withhold fiscal support, to withdraw fiscal support too soon and to leave us with an economy that really languished for a long period of time, right? That we could have had a, a much more robust recovery, but we got anxious about the deficit and we didn't um, stick with the fiscal support. So I, I think that I'm very um, open to the idea of having the deficits without the debt. We can do that. We can run fiscal deficits without increasing the debt if we don't issue the treasuries. In fact, I'll go one step further and, and I'll make the case that selling bonds is almost surely more inflationary than not selling bonds. And I think that the reason is fairly obvious to me anyway. It's because if you just run the deficit, then you're just spending more dollars into the economy than you're subtracting out. Leave those dollars in the system where they will earn zero right? They're, they're non-interest bearing. That's non-interest bearing currency. If you replace those dollars with treasuries, you're replacing them with interest bearing currency. And that's got to impart a higher inflationary bias than just leaving the non-interest bearing dollars in the system. So for both reasons, um, one is the political, which you raised, Felix, and I'm, uh, I think that's right. We would have uh, a much harder time falling into panic mode if 
the CBO wasn't producing that graph that shows the debt to GDP ratio increasing, right, uh, very sharply because of the deficits. We would just have, you know, a commitment to provide the fiscal support to the economy without the so-called national debt rising and that, you know, shivers down the spine sort of thing. So why do you think that no one in, like, contemporary planet Earth does this? Like, why is it that governments around the world feel the need to cover every single dollar of government spending with a dollar of government borrowing? Because I think it's your opening to this whole conversation. The idea that we're going to tell people that the government doesn't need to tax or borrow in order to fund itself is it upsets the apple cart. I mean, it it really does let everybody know that um, the, the whole thing works differently from what they've been taught to believe. Um, why aren't governments doing it? You know, I could kind of make the case that they are doing it in the sense that the Bank of Japan or the Bank of England, once the central bank starts buying all new issues, basically the whole, right, uh, matched with the amount of deficit spending, once the central bank buys the bonds, it's as if Treasury never issued them in the first place. They are, for all intents and purposes, retired at that point. The problem is that for reasons that behoove me, we we count the treasuries that sit on the Fed's balance sheet as part of the publicly held debt. And that's crazy, right? I mean, it's got, it, at that point, yeah. it's it's gone. It has been disappeared. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Um, Anna, what's your number? My number is seven quadrillion. That's um, awesome. So I love that number. It, it's a big number, right? So yes, seven quadrillion. Okay, so this is kind of an honor of the fact that we are taping this on Juneteenth. So I was working on a piece this week on reparations, and I was talking with this professor, University of Connecticut, and he did some math about kind of figuring out like the unpaid wages, just from the 89 years between 76 and 1865. And if you kind of figure out about like what those wages would be, and then you compound them, and if you compound them at 3%, you get to about 20 trillion, about the size of US GDP. If you combine that at 6%, which is probably actually more accurate based on kind of different both inflation and um, kind of interest rates, you get to seven quadrillion dollars would be what those unpaid wages would kind of be worth in a sense if they had been invested in today's dollars. That's a lot of, That's money. A lot of money. Which is more than the amount of wealth on planet Earth. Oh, it's like 50 times global GDP. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's clearly like, you know, no one's necessarily going to say anyone would have this money right now, but it's just this idea of like the amount of wealth and also the amount of wealth that was stolen at the time. And then also just how important compound interest is. <laughs> it's like the, the large power of compound interest. Yeah, I feel I feel I, I I see these calculations a lot about what if you could just compound for centuries, but kind of there's very, very few individuals or institutions or families who've ever been able to do that. It's kind of amazing. Oh. I think I think the Habsburgs did it for longer than most, but it's it's probably it's true. Really yeah. hard. It's true. You know, it's very true, although it is interesting to think about like, you know, just I guess in terms of like wealth that was given in like the Homestead Act or something and how many people still have wealth that was generated from that money, that land that was just given to white people in the Homestead Act. And if you kind of, you know, figure out over time how much money that's worth. It's just, I think these these conceptions of, of wealth and you have to think about kind of like over time how much wealth has been generated and just also thinking about, unfortunately, how slavery and that unpaid labor was like 
our economy would never have existed without it. And so all that wealth that was generated was basically made. All the wealth that has existed has basically been kind of off of that. So next month, we're going to have a special episode of Slate Money with my cousin, Thomas Harding, and talking about family wealth. And I've been thinking about that a lot today on Juneteenth, because the original source of the salmon family wealth was when we sold um, salmon and Gluckstein cigarettes to basically an American tobacco company in the 19th century. And that American tobacco company money was obviously made off the backs of slaves in Virginia. And that wealth we invested on a sort of multi-generational basis. And some of it has made its way to me. Definitely something I'm thinking about uh, today. But Emily, what's your number? Six. My number is six. That is the number of Supreme Court justices that were on the right side of history this week when they voted to uphold LGBTQ rights in the workplace. And you can no longer be fired for being gay or lesbian or transgender at work because of this decision. Um, And that was a rare piece of good news, which was honestly, it, it felt weird to receive good news right now it's so it's and so we rare. had we had gorsuch and roberts coming out on the side of the angels <sighs> yeah the opinion was written by gorsuch and um he just looked at title seven of the civil rights act and was like you can't discriminate on the basis of sex and if you fire someone for being married to a man and you don't fire another person for being married to a man and the only difference is one person you know it, the only difference is their sex that's discrimination and uh yeah we don't we don't do that. So it was it was really gratifying to see it. And um, I wasn't at all confident that that's how the court was going to go. So it was really surprising and a rare piece of good news. My, my number is three, which was the finance with his favorite hate read this week was this wonderful column by a freelance journalist called Shruti Advani in the Financial Times, where she was talking about (laughs) how she managed to cope with the lockdown in Kensington. And she might be a freelance journalist, but she's also inherited a bunch of money and she's married to a venture capitalist who works for a VC company called Eight Roads. And so the first thing she did, which I love so much, is... um, well, the first thing she did was she forced her nanny to move move in with her. She gave up her spare room so that her nanny could move in with her, which was like, you know, selfless, obviously. Um, <laughs> and then she said, conscious of my responsibility towards the additional souls on board, I took stock of what resources I could call on. Trebling our usual order from the Freddy's Flowers delivery service was the obvious place to start. So I think that that is how you cope with the pandemic, people, is to multiply by three your normal um, spending on flower delivery, which is actually what I did. I trebled my normal flower, flower delivery as well, but it went from, from zero to zero. But yes. Mine went from zero to 100. I've been getting flowers every week because it, I've been in my apartment for a very long time and I need it to look nicer. It's okay. It's, it's good. There's no judgment. This is a judgment-free zone. Um, but <laughs> Stephanie Kelton, I've been saving the best to last. What is your number? I think my number is going to be 12. Okay. So 12 is the number of points that Biden currently leads Donald Trump in the latest Fox News poll. So you said in a world where there's not much good news, I'm going to say from my perspective, <laughs> that's pretty good news. 
Yes. I think for the world's perspective, it's yeah. good news. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great news. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still worried, great I have old. to say. But. No, me too. I think that's it for us this week. I'm, we're going to have a Slate Plus segment about a question which I have, a psychological question I have, which is, why do I feel reassured by the stock market being strong, even though I know that the stock market has nothing to do with the economy? Other than that, many thanks for listening to us this week. Uh, Professor Gelton, thank you so much for being here. It was amazing. Many, many thanks to Jasmine Molly for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. Money.